Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. As always, I'm Alan, your host for the podcast. Who would you be if you weren't? I would just be some random guy talking on a microphone, maybe? I guess. I'm uh, happy you're not a random guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm your usually here producer. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is with the wonderful Anne Harada, who has... Uh, a number of wonderful credits on her resume, one of which is my personal favorite, Christmas Eve from from Avenue Q. Yeah, that was a good one. I remember being a youngin when Avenue Q came out, and uh, and we would watch uh, It Sucks to Be Me, the Tony performance all the time, and we would try to copy her accent, which is not politically correct. Don't do that anymore, but she's hilarious. I wonder, I didn't ask her this, but I wondered if that show would would do as well opening in in 2019 as as it did when it opened originally. I think anytime you do satire if you are smart about it and respectful in in real life but it's it's the same as Book of Mormon like it still works um because it's right. Yeah, I was going um, I was going to bring up Matt yeah. Stone and Trey Parker specifically for their continued work yeah. on South Park and yeah. even the Simpsons for that matter. Yeah, but Avenue Q lasted 15 years yeah. because it was satire done well and it mm-hmm. was funny but it it made you look deeper inside of your own uh, biases and your yeah. own stuff. Yeah. So Anne came to us here through the promotion of what we're now calling a new soundstage musical where uh, through through no one called ahead.com. No one called ahead is the name of this thing. And you can go there to view the trailer and then on June 13th you'll be able to actually to actually start watching it. But it is a a stage production filmed for a streaming audience. Yeah, that's a, a new thing, but I, I like the idea. I like I like giving people access who aren't here in New York or aren't seeing as many shows regionally or wherever. If they're not in a physical theater, this is this is a pretty good alternative. I like what she said too. Uh, I asked her, I was like, Do you think this is kind of taking things away from the Broadway community or whatever? And she said, Absolutely not. Like uh, she loves all of this stuff. She mm-hmm. loves it. I mean, aside from being in it and obviously wanting to promote it. Um she she said that you know she used Hamilton as an example of when when a rising tide rises all ships and something that is going to get more people interested in Broadway and interested in theater and interested in musicals in any format is just good for the industry full stop it's a it's a gateway yeah it it you don't just stop at at that one thing that you saw it, it kind of Brings you to the next thing. Anybody who loves theater remembers the first show that they they loved, mm. and then all the things that kind of came after that, and all the different things that were important to them. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So, everybody, before we get into the episode, please take a moment and visit us at thetheaterpodcast.com/slash Patreon. Show your support in any way you can. We want to take some of these initial patrons uh, and and help get transcriptions made. We want to help do some more in-between episodes to continue the ensemble-focused episodes that we continue to receive a ton of good feedback on. So anyway, everyone, please enjoy this episode with Anne Harada. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Making her Broadway debut performance in 1988 in M. Butterfly, she's also been part of productions such as Susical, Les Mis, 9 to 5, Roger and Hammerstein's Cinderella, and of course, Avenue Q, where she originated and defined the iconically witty and funny role of Christmas Eve. Now starring in No One Called Ahead, a new stage musical filmed for a brand new internet format streaming exclusively on streamingmusicals.com, Anne Harada, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> it is so nice to have you here. Well, thank you. And I guess we normally start with your childhood, but I emphasized filmed for No One Called Ahead because th- this is what you're here to promote today. It's it's your new project that is, uh, what do you call it? A, a, a streaming, it's a streaming musical. It's a soundstage musical. That's what it's being is called. Is that what it's, they're calling it now? Yeah. I, Look, I have no idea what it's being called. I just know that I think it's a good idea in terms of uh, getting to uh, perform a show and to have a lot of people get to see it in a kind of a, a non-traditional way. Well, what what is it for those who have no idea what I just spit out of my mouth? I'm not you? sure I know what it is either, but <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, Paul Gordon wrote a musical, Right. Uh, he got a bunch of actors together to act it out. And it was filmed on a set, on a stage set, Mm -hmm. as if we were doing it as a performance. But we didn't. It was filmed. And so it's going to be, it was edited together, and it's going to be presented, and you can watch it on your streaming service. It'll be available on noonecalledahead.com and streamingmusicals.com. And I watched the trailer this morning to, to prepare for this, and it's, it's it struck me as something like uniquely different, and I wanted to ask your opinion on whether you thought it was going to be the future of a a fork of theater. I don't think theater will ever go completely in that direction. I think it's going to be the future of developing theater. I think it's a way to get artists who otherwise would not be able to mount a full commercial production. It'll be a way for them to produce it and have a piece of product that then other people can watch easily <laughs> as opposed to when you mount a production in New York and you hope that people come and like it and then maybe somebody will invest in it and it'll move on to the next step. I think it's a much more efficient way. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it proves to be lucrative or work in the same way as these, you know, the old model works, who the hell knows? But I think it's an interesting way to do it. I think it's incredible, and I, I was reading through the website, and and I'm bringing this up because it's right there on the website. But it, it, all the, the the actors that are involved in it, 
are part of a profit-sharing program, right? Theoretically. <laughs> Assuming there is profit? I was going to say, you know, <laughs> you know, 1% of nothing is nothing and whatever. So we all know that. But, I mean, it's lovely to think that we would all be involved in it should it ever come to pass. That's an interesting way. That's a truly interesting way of, of doing this because I, I, I believe, you know, for Hamilton, Lin-Manuel was the first creator of a show to give back to the original cast in on a, for our Broadway production at least and no but there are many other <laughs> productions in the past that you know the cast had points in it participatory points you know the work the chorus line workshop all those pr- oh did they do that oh yeah oh educate yeah. me please no I'm just saying like uh, there's uh, there's been a business model for it it had fallen out of favor of course because producers don't like to give money to the actors but in the past there were many productions where the actors shared and some of that percentage point. Oh well, I think I think it's it's a smart idea here. Uh, I mean, it, you have a little bit of a, more of an ownership over it. But anyway, tell me about tell me about No One Called Ahead specifically. Like, what is your role? What's the show about? Well, okay. Can we call it a show or do we call it a movie? I don't know what to call it. I, I I'm calling it a show. Okay. Uh, you know, it's a it's a show about art. It's a show about an artist sort of struggling with his own, you know, legacy. And his place in the world and all of that. And he is sort of visited by, I don't know if you want to call them spirits or beings or people that apparate in front of him. I'm an angel. And I appear to him and give him advice and help him out and whatever. And there are other women who also appear in his life and act in similar ways. And... um, and it's sort of a it's sort of a little meditation on what it is to be an artist and you know what kind of legacy do you leave behind and does it even matter if you do and you know that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's you know really funny and um the other girls are wonderful. You know like we all the we we there's hardly any time we're all together in the same space. So we really were only together for a hot minute. But just watching them work was fun and I don't know. I just I thought it was a very collaborative effort and very moving. Is it is it filmed like like a film or is it filmed like a stage production where it's just one giant take? Oh no no, it's filmed like a film. So you can make mistakes and you go back. Oh, and, and many many mistakes certainly on my part were made in terms of <laughs> yes you know you know you shoot you shoot it this way and you shoot it that way you, it, things move around. It's a film. Oh, that's that's so cool. I. I feel like it's going to give an audience, a, a, I guess, an intimacy with performers that they probably didn't have before. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too. Because you can sit here and literally be, you know, feel like you're several feet away from right. from your favorite performers. And yet we're singing live. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's that there's that part. Oh, so you're so you are editing it, but you're singing live from various angles. Correct. It's like we're singing <laughs> like, okay, so the music's playing and we're singing like in one take. Right. But, yes, we're shooting it several different ways, and it, it's different than in a regular show where you sing it through once from the front. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's different, I guess. That's fun. Well, okay, so so we'll get back to that, but I want to I back up to the beginning. And tell me, tell me where you grew up. You were born in Hawaii, right? I was. I was born yeah. in Honolulu, Hawaii. And uh, my greatest claim to fame is that I went to high school with Barack Obama. He was two years ahead of me in high school. We did not know each other. 
I was gonna. I was hoping there was like we made out under the bleachers. Uh, wouldn't that have been lovely? But no. Um, he was on the basketball team, and I was in the theater department. And unlike High School Musical, those two worlds did not meet. So. <laughs> well, then, what? Where did you? You said you were in the theater department in high school, but how did you decide you wanted to do theater? What were you? What were you drawn to? Oh, I think just um, you know seeing the shows at school. I was just so overwhelmed that people could do that. You know, kids could do that. Um, and I just thought it just seemed so fascinating and amazing. I wanted to try for myself. But you wanted to be on uh, the production side at first, right? Was I, I was reading that? Oh, I've, I mean, I worked on the production side. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to work in the theater. You know, when you graduate from college, I don't know, maybe not you, but when I graduated from college, I didn't know if I wanted to be an actor, if I could be an actor, if I had the talent and you know, the desire and all that kind of stuff. So I just started trying to take as many kinds of different jobs as I could and sort of see what appealed to me. And that's always sort of been like what I've done my whole life is try to learn all the parts of of the theater world. Were your parents always uh, supportive of that? Or you know, were they surprisingly like, get a, get a they job. were. You know, yeah. I'm kind of stunned about it even now. <laughs> um, but I think they sort of thought, well, it keeps her out of trouble and we know where she is at night. So that's something I think... You know, uh, I think they were very happy that I decided to pursue something, but I cared about something enough mm -hmm. to want to try. Are you a, do you have siblings? Do you I don't. No, I'm an only, only child. child. So they let you just go off into the theatrical they did. world. They did. Put all their eggs in one basket like that. Oh, good for you, Anne's parents, if you're listening. I know, out, right? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you went to Brown, yeah? Yeah. And what did you actually get your degree in? Theater arts and English and American literature. It's very easy to double major at Brown because there are no um, course requirements there. And <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to sort of, you know, do a lot. But it was fun. Mm -hmm. And it was way before it was a, a formalized theater program. They have one now with Trinity. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and at, at that point, it was basically just sort of like, okay, we're going to do four shows on the main stage and good luck, everybody. There wasn't, it was not very formal. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they, that the, I guess the formalization of the theater program was somewhat of a recent thing. Yeah. Not particularly. It's just that I was there a really long time ago. <laughs> so I, th I found it interesting that your first Broadway, your actual first Broadway credit is as a production assistant. Yes. That was that's fun for, in 1987 mm -hmm. for sleight of hand. Yep. So when when did you move to New York though? 1985, right 80, after I graduated from college. So 85, and then were you trying to audition for theater or just working in? Um, no, crew? I worked as an intern for this Broadway producer. This is how I got to be the production assistant on this show, and and she had the rights to this play, and so basically I got to watch kind of like from beginning to end, how you produce a play. You know, I got to be with her at casting sessions and make phone calls to investors and help set up the readings and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So like kind of the nuts and bolts of producing. And I learned very quickly that I did not want to be a producer. <laughs> but I also could see real people, you know, like real actors mm -hmm. auditioning and stuff. And you go to the auditions and you're like, I'm as good as him. I'm not as good as her. I'm, you know, like you're watching it and going like, maybe I could do this. Like it helped give me some perspective on mm -hmm. what was sort of out there. 
that's such a unique position to be in before you ever get your first Broadway credit. You're watching other people audition for shows. Right. So you know what works. You hear all the all the backstage or not backstage, I guess behind the scenes chatter of like, oh my God, did you see the did you see what she was wearing or what he what's what right. he sung or and whatever then, you it was? Know, and it's it's very instructive, especially if you are on a show with like, you know, professional people, that it's sort of like, well, everybody's prepared, everybody, you know, there's mm-hmm. a certain level of talent. And then there's people who are just way more and way less. And and are not right, clearly deeply not right for a part, but still very talented. Mm-hmm. It becomes so obvious once you're behind the table and have you have no stake, I have no stakes in it to just be very like, oh yeah, now I see why you would cast this girl over that girl. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Without any other kind of like thing on it. And has that helped you sort of choose which roles you want to go in for? No, what it has what it's done is helped me realize that I have no control over that situation. Oh, wow. You know, it's sort of like, okay, I'll read something and I go, I really don't think I'm right for this. And they're like, they really want you to come in. You're like, okay, maybe I will. Um, But not to have any personal stake in it. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like, I'll do the best that I can. I know what I can bring to something. I know what I think I'm right for, but I'm happy to go in if they want me. But, you know, it's just sort of like, it, it takes it all that other part out. It takes like, they like me. They don't like me. I'm bad. I'm good. It doesn't matter. It's like, it will become clear if you are right for the role regardless, yeah. I think. Yeah. There's <laughs> countless times now on this podcast, especially I've heard stories from people who have, you know, been doing this for, for a decade or more. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's, you just go in, you do your best. It's out of my control and just make bold choices. That's right. And hopefully something works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's really great. I, I did some casting myself um, for, for, I guess it was a, a TV thing back in, oh goodness, oh four, oh five, something like that. And just the immediacy of getting all the submissions and like people not knowing what actually it, uh, eight by 10 is <laughs> versus eight and a half by 11. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, duck, trash, trash, trash. Like just follow straight instructions. You know, that's step one to get in the door. But anyway, I digress. 2000, you did Susicle, and I got I pulled a quote out of Wikipedia here, and you say it was such a roller coaster ride. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. You just show up to work every day and go, I wonder what's going to happen today. There was way too much drama for one show to take, and it didn't deserve that kind of drama because it really is a great little show. Can you explain more about what that meant? What happened behind the scenes? Oh, I think everybody knows what happened at Susicle. You know, we went out of town. Um, people got fired. Um, it was one of those situations where I felt that nobody really knew what they wanted. You know, on the creative side? On the creative team, you know, or the production. It's like... For instance, you'd show up and you'd put on the costume and they'd be like, well, we don't like it. And I'd be like, well, you approved it. There's a drawing on the wall that you approved that looks exactly like what I'm wearing. You know, so obviously people had just sort of not done their communication very well beforehand. And so things just changed very quickly during the Susicle. Um, did that, that throw around the cast a lot, I guess? 
Yeah, it was a little depressing. <laughs> yeah, it was a little unsettling, you know. I mean, we bonded very strongly, obviously. Those are the shows where you bond with your right. cast. Very, you're very tight. It's yeah. like, it's almost traumatic in a way, isn't it? It's not? very traumatic. Yeah? Yeah. So it's a little bit, I mean, I, I've kind of used this analogy before that when you're going through uh, eight, the eight show a week schedule or going through like 12-hour day texts or whatever it is, you're like emotionally exhausted and you just lean on each other and bond. Yeah. And so are you still close with the cast? From I am. Susical? I am close yeah. with some of my Susical buddies. Really yeah. close, yeah. Um, and I don't think you ever that ever goes away, you know. There's a vulnerability about um, being part of a new production and about – uh, things changing around you and you feel like uh, you might not have a job tomorrow and and all that stuff that just makes people very um, close. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm really glad that, to have had that experience because I do love that show and I'm so grateful for <clears throat> having met all the people involved in that show. But I wouldn't want to repeat that situation again. <laughs> Has anything ever come close? Or, I mean, you, you like after that, it no. went into Avenue Q, it looks like, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was, yes, 2000 was, was Susical, and then 2003 was Avenue Q. Yeah. And that sort of changed the trajectory of your career a little bit. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. The original Christmas Eve. How much input did you have on the character? Or, or were you just kind of given the script and you're like, this is what oh you do? Oh, my God. <laughs> I had a lot of input. Yeah. Because I was with the. I was with the writers, um, and we were developing it as early as, like, 1999, you know, um, like in little table reads and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we all went to the O'Neill together in 2002, develop it further before we went to the Vineyard. Mm -hmm. You know, so, yeah, all of the performers had a lot of input into what their characters were like. And uh, it was great. Yeah. Well, it's it's – I mean, Christmas Eve is – one of the iconic roles I feel like of of the past several years. I mean, she's just, gosh, just so unbelievably quick and smart, and and I think, uh, gosh, empowering in a time before women needed to <coughs> like were really starting to come out as being empowering on on stage, and it it hit at a time right as things were ramping up. I mean, so was this part of your like your conscious choice to bring it in, or were you just like, I'm going to be my funny self and do what I need to do? I think it was just a choice of who she turned out to be. You know, like there were many, many drafts of Avenue Q. And Christmas Eve had many, many jobs. She went through many jobs sort really? of in the phase of the development. Oh, yeah. And when, and when they decided she was going to be a therapist, I was like, okay, here we go. Like, this makes some sense now, finally, in terms of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And she says and she always sort of acted as an advice giver and a truth teller. And I thought, great, now she has an actual reason to be like this. And um, it was very helpful. I just feel like at any given point in time, I'm supposed to help develop who the character is on the page. Right, I get the I get the script, and I go, okay, this, 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 and then we'd get to a scene, and you'd be like, what about this or this? I, that's sort of the advantage of being with a project for a long time, mm -hmm. is that you sort of build a trust with the with the creative team and your other actors, and you go, what do you think about that? What if we tried it this way? So, you know, who knows? I mean, like, 
it, it was such a long process, but it was so fun always. And I just always thought, Christmas Eve just has to be real. She just has to be true. There's, mm-hmm. you know. Well, she is real. I I think how she how she treats Brian, the character of Brian, it's it's speaks to a lot of people's mm-hmm. relationships <laughs> and marriages in general. Um, uh, yeah, the the relationship between the two of them is great. But the show just closed, so moment of silence. Okay, there we go. Um, but then you also you left. Uh, to have a baby, right? To have your your son Elvis. Well, I didn't leave to have a baby. I had a baby. Well, well had a baby and took maternity leave. <laughs> I did. I took maternity leave, then I came right back. Then I then I was like, now I need to take a leave. And then uh, when that happened, they tapped me for London. Right. So um, then I took my whole family over to London. Was there for six months. Opened the show there. Came back. Got put into Les Mis. Was in Les Mis for six months. Finished that. Went back into Avenue. You know, it was like one of those like. But I ended up finishing the run on Broadway for Avenue Q. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. Very, you went back. To, and I was very happy to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, what? What year was that? Oh nine. That I was on nine. Yeah, yeah. Before it moved to New World, New World stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was great. I I loved that you came back and kind of. Brought it full circle. I, I wanted to. I, I felt like I had something more to say after I had sort of gone away to London and tried out some stuff there. You know what I mean? To me, every part is a changing thing. And, mm-hmm. and I just feel like I'm not done. I don't I think I don't think I would ever really be done trying to figure out all the ins and outs of her or anybody. Well, the show had a great 15-year run. Yeah. Like both Broadway and off-Broadway. How did it how did it change? Like from the beginning to the end, how did you see it? You said that, you know, you went to London, you came back, and now you're trying new material, trying new stuff. So did did the, every new iter- incarnation of the character as new actors took it over, like, did it slightly change it, or was it still? It was I mean, always it. It was yeah. always Avenue Q. But for me, as an actor, you know, I'm trying to keep it fresh and keep it as true as I can in every given show, Right. And I thought before I had left to go to London, all right, I've played this variation a million times. I got it. And then when I was in London, I was like, no, I don't think so. I think there's more to explore. So I, because, so I, because I had the chance and a whole new cast to kind of mess around with, I just tried some different things. And then when I came back to New York, I was like, all right, let me try that. Like, you know, just because mm-hmm. I just don't think parts are, I just don't think parts are done. I don't think, I don't think you can because... Things are you. You have different scene partners. You have different audiences. There's always like a new thing to try or a new kind of like approach to a line. And I just thought, well, you have got the time. You might as well take advantage of it and see what you can do. Are the UK audiences? Did they? Do they still get the jokes the same way the US they does? Absolutely yeah. got the jokes. It's it was really funny because we were so sure they weren't going to get really so many of the jokes. Well, they're very American. You know, some of the jokes. I mean, like we had to change things like. Long Island iced tea. Like, that was a thing that they did not know what it was. What'd you change it to? Absinthe daiquiri. <laughs> you know, just like something that's like a disgusting drink. Like, Ugh. you know, like could be immediately, you know, taken in as that's a sounds terrible. You know what I mean? <laughs> like a bad idea yeah. of a drink. So, like, that's why, you know. But I was like, really? That's what we're wasting our time worrying about. <laughs> But it was true, like, you know, if one, when you're clicking along, comedy has a rhythm, and if people are sitting there going like, what's that? 
then it just slows the boat down. And of you course. don't ever want that to happen. Yeah. So. Well, of course, I guess in the UK, the internet is still per- for porn. Absolutely it is. So, yeah. They that, got that one fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's still one of my all-time favorite songs. Um, did you did you find it hard or was how did you balance being a new mom with still continuing on this like kind of upward career trajectory? I think that's um, something that every mother <laughs> who's an actor has sort of has to grapple with and everybody has a different way of dealing with it. I was very lucky. I had a great deal of support. My parents moved from Hawaii to like basically be my nanny wow. and my butler. You know what I mean? And um, and they came with us to London as well. So I always sort of had childcare. I wasn't worried about that part of it, which was such a load off of my mind. And especially because the, you know, the schedule is so dreadful for newborns um, when you're oh, on horrible. Broadway because yeah. you're like uh, out all night and you know the baby has to sleep. Blah blah. It's it was just a nightmare. So I'm so grateful. Yeah. For that. Um, yeah, I was very, very lucky. Um, I, I don't wish it on anybody. It's brutal. It's brutal. The motherhood thing or the, well, just the in motherhood terms of acting? Like, I, I, lo- I loved and I love being a mother, but it was it's so hard to like match it up with like, you know, the nighttime schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I— I, I like it. I like what following uh, people like um, Stephanie J. Block now, and right. and um, people like Laura Benanti who post so publicly about struggles of being a successful working mother in theater. And as a parent myself of two little ankle biters, hmm. with normal hours, <laughs> I still find it hard. I have no idea how you did it, how they did, I don't how know. they're I doing it. I have no it. idea how I'm doing it now, frankly. You know, my kid is fourteen. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, but it's like, it's still hard. I'm super tired. I just want to like fall down all the time. <laughs> I'm so tired. Yeah. Um. But like, what are you going to do? Third cup of coffee. Everybody's, right here. everybody's got something, you know, and actors, we have a weird schedule. That's the game, name of the game. It sucks on the weekends so, so much. Oh yeah. Cause you, you're not you're home never so much. Home. Yeah. You're never home. When did he start coming to the theater with you? Oh, very young. Really? Like, you know, my husband would bring him around and we'd breastfeed, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he loved the puppets. You know, oh, of course. A little, yeah. A little toddler. And, oh. um, and Abby Hughes always been a very family friendly place, <laughs> believe it or not, backstage anyway. Um, you know, but like, I, uh, I'm thrilled that he likes the theater. I don't think he's going to be in the theater, um, but he seems to enjoy it, and uh, he loves going backstage. So, you know, it's like, well, my job here is done. If I can get him to the point where he goes to the theater voluntarily and is excited about things, I'm like, great, that's all I need. What's he want to do? Does he talk to you about that at all? No idea. could not tell you. I think YouTube celebrity is his eventual goal. Seems so easy to do, right? I know, doesn't it? Yeah, just post some crap out there and hope you get hurt. Um, <laughs> that's everybody, I think. Yeah, well, fame does not come easily from no, most people. No, no, no. But no, I, would you encourage him to have a, a life in the arts? That's what he wants. Yeah? How could I not encourage him to have a life in the arts? I don't know. I, I've I talked have to, a life in the arts. I've talked to some people who were like, this is so hard, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Well, yeah, but am I doing it? 
because it's easy. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, what are our choices? Why are you doing it? Because I love the theater. It's all I've ever wanted to do is work in the theater. I couldn't not work in the theater. So what am I gonna what am I gonna say? Oh, it's so hard. I shouldn't do it. That's ridiculous. What do you get when you when you step on stage and you feel that audience? Like what what is it about it that draws you to that? Oh, I it's you know, the thrill of being able to connect with all of those people, to know that you for better or for worse, have their attention for <laughs> a short period of time and to make and to make them laugh and to make and to entertain them. I think it's so lovely. I think it's so valuable for us to have a community. And I think people for millennia have been getting together in big groups in front of a stage to watch things. And there's something about the collective watching of it that elevates it. Mm-hmm. It, you know, that we don't have, we have less and less of right in this world right now. Even in, even before uh, when there were only three channels on television, you had a fighting <laughs> chance of seeing the same thing at the same time with a whole bunch of other people and having a shared experience. Maybe they weren't all next to you, but you at least knew the next day you could talk about it at the office, you mm-hmm. know. Okay. Well, now you can't do that because there's 500 channels and everybody's watching their own thing and whatever. Unless it's some sort of, you know, big event, like it's the end of Game of Thrones or whatever. But I'm just saying, like, there's so few events like that. And, like, in our world, it might be, like, the Tonys or the Oscars, where we're all, we all know we're watching the same thing on the same day at the same time. There's a power to that. There's, like, a, there's like a, when you're all sharing a communal experience, you are reminded of your humanity and what it is, why we why we are who we are. You know, I just feel like there's something so beautiful about being in a theater with everybody else watching the same thing. It's it's church. I mean, to me, it's that's where I feel the most happy and contented. Do you do you have any sort of preference towards making people laugh versus making them cry or is it just you just want to make them feel? That's it. You just want to make them feel something. Yeah. Yeah. So then, okay, so that kind of leads me back to No One Called Ahead. It, it, was it, is it hard when, or was it hard when filming that to not have an audience? Oh, I was so grateful we didn't have an audience. Really? <laughs> oh, my God. Are you kidding? It was so hard because we just, um, you know, it was very similar to some TV experiences where I've had where, you know, we didn't really have enough time to rehearse. So I was just grateful that was like I was making all my mistakes, you know, in front of fewer people as opposed to more people. But it was so, um, it was really, really fun. I really think that um, the intimacy of it is going to draw people in. Uh, It was funny, when I was watching the trailer, it kind of reminded me of watching like TV movies when I was a little girl. Oh, really? And going like, oh, this could kind of be like that you know what I mean? <laughs> right um i just think it's such an innovative way to try to get a project going yeah or at least to get that project out to the public um i feel like a lot of the models that we've had in the past especially for smaller musicals haven't really been the most cost effective um practical 
I don't know how, you know, like, let's say you're part of a festival for Mm -hmm. new musicals or something like that, where you still have to spend so much money just to mount like a simple production in a terrible off-Broadway theater, (laughs) you know, and like rip down your set in 15 minutes so we can change it for the next one. I mean, Mm -hmm. like that's, that just seems so against what we're trying to do here. So I'm thrilled that there's another kind of business model. I hope that it works and I hope that other people will find success in it. Yeah, I've noticed like the end of end of 2018 into this year, 2019, that that there have been it's kind of like a a, a a technology, sort of a startup bubble in around the Broadway community, the theater community, because there there's this, right? Streamingmusicals.com. And Stage Network and a couple others that are like Broadway HD that are taking mm-hmm. uh, that are taking the theater and bringing it to people who may never get to New York. Right. And is that? Uh, do you feel? I, I mean, you sort of already answered this. I think that you feel it's it's adding to the to the I guess the the uh, um, ecosystem. That's the word I'm looking Absolutely for. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. Everything is. I feel feel now that every platform, every streamy thing, every kind of media is only helping each other. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't, at this point, I don't feel like we're competing against each other. I feel like everything branded Broadway is good for Broadway. Every show, like Hamilton, lifts all the boats. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. Um. Because people, if they find something and they're enthused about it, they will keep looking. They will keep going. That's just what we're like. You know, we like a show on Netflix and we're just like, mm, maybe this one will be good because I like this guy. You know what I mean? It just keeps going. There's a chain. And so I sort of feel like that's that's what we have to encourage. Like, I I don't know. I don't know a good way of putting it. Um But I sort of feel like if you're somebody who cares about any musical on Broadway, you're going to find another musical you like. And then maybe your fandom of that musical will take you to something else. And pretty soon you're somebody who's really into Stephen Sondheim. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, you know, Hadestown could be your gateway drug or whatever to get to the rest of the canon Mm -hmm. or any show. Yeah, you follow you follow, you follow the, it. the composer, you follow, you follow an actor, exactly. or an actress, or whoever it you is. Know? Yeah, and all of us are already in the church, so it's sort of like we all care, but we're such a small community, and so unless we get out there to a wider world, it's not really going to matter. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities, technologically speaking, that that I I think we're going to start seeing uh, companies take advantage of it in a good way mm-hmm. in the next few years. And I think this is a perfect example of that. And whether or not this works, hopefully it does, um, we're going to learn from it right. and we'll improve upon it. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, everybody, something's going to come out and change the game. And it's, you know, hopefully it's this. And even if it doesn't, it'll just be another way. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, like it might not solve every problem <laughs> in terms of that sort of thing, but it might be another way for other people. You know what I love about about the internet and, and podcasting, you know, sort of this sort of thing too, is that once it's out there, it it lives in perpetuity. 
Correct. It's just there. And, you know, you look at celebrities who try to take their scandals offline, it doesn't go away. And in a good way, that's, that's working to everyone's advantage. So if everyone wants to find this 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, it's in digital form. It's not going to degrade. Well, maybe that's good or bad, depending on my performance. But we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, um, gosh, it releases June 13th, 2019, uh, 2019 which is very soon. So, very yeah, soon. Very soon. So, yeah, we'll, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll start seeing that all over the place. But um, I want to get back into a little bit of your career. So you closed Cinderella yes. in 2015. And of course, you were working with the lovely Laura Osnes. She's an angel. Santino Fontana. And my the friend greatest. Marla Mendel, who's now got, like, she's all over the Netflix. She is the sassiest. She is a queen. I love Oh my God, Marla her. I love her. Um, and then, so that was 2015. And between then and now, you've been doing a lot of regional, yeah? Mm. Yeah, it was Muni and Paper Mill. Yeah, and, I do, I've done the Muni and I've done Paper Mill. In Bucks County, I and think Bucks you had, County, yeah. Bucks County, and some off-Broadway stuff. Yeah. And is that, is that, I was, someone told me that, that you're spending more time with your family, or is, you're, are you kind of like... I'm trying uh, not to be out of town so much, because yeah. I would rather be with my kid until he graduates. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very hard to have a career um, outside of New York with a kid. I just... You know, it makes my husband a de facto single father. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, you're just not there. You just don't have a presence, you know, and I would rather try to be there if I could. I, d- I don't mind working short jobs, but longer jobs are more problematic. Yeah. So for the, he's 14, you said. So yeah. now for the next like three to four years, yeah. hopefully and, you'll and be sticking around. You know, once yeah. he goes to college, I'm just like, take me to Cleveland. You know, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> but like right now, I'm like, I really don't want to, but thank you. Have have all the roles that, that you've taken uh, been sort of like the sassy comedic type? Or have you ever like been able to really sink your teeth into like a dramatic role? Oh, I feel yeah. like I've done both. And I'm... Um, and I enjoy both. Um, I enjoy plays just as much as musicals. And I I just feel like, I don't know, I, what am I trying to say? Like, I'm at the point where if somebody has an interesting idea about me, I'm more than willing to give it a shot. Like the like you were saying earlier, like I don't think I'm right, but they want to see me. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like you think I can play that part. Okay, <laughs> that's what <laughs> I felt about the Muni because this summer I'm going to go off and play, um, you know, in Matilda, the Leslie Margarita role, whose name I cannot remember at all right now. Mrs. Wormwood. This, Hello, yes. Mrs. Wormwood. And as you know, Leslie Margarita is a very talented woman who can do a cooter smash, and she dances. She's very glamorous and kick her leg over her head. And I can do none of those things. (laughs) And I am none of those things. So I was like, really? That's the part you want me to follow? (laughs) But at this point, it's like, what have I got to lose? I haven't heard the term cooter smash in 14 years. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for bringing that back. Uh, (laughs) Oh, wow. That brings back memories. The... uh, uh, on Smash, you played um, the stage manager. Yes. Wait, the stage manager of the show within the show. Yes. Yes. Did you did you enjoy? Oh my god! It was the greatest Smash? job of my life. Really? Are you kidding me? 
oh, I had nothing to do. I had no responsibility. All I had to do every day was show up, sit next to Jack Davenport and pretend to take notes. It was amazing. It was like the greatest job I've ever had. One time, I got to sit next to Angelica Houston, and we got to watch Bernadette Peters all afternoon sing a song. That sounds horrible. Wasn't Doesn't that sound terrible? <laughs> I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. I, am not, I don't have to do squatty boo. And it was awesome. And I just loved the idea that I could go back to a set over and over. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, I don't, I've never done real a lot of TV work. So, yeah. um, you know, just to be able to come back and know like, oh my God, that camera guy, and that's his name. And that's what he's going to do. And like that whole thing mm-hmm. was great for me. So lovely. Everybody in the show was wonderful. You know, they're all theater people. They're actual people. They're not weirdos. They talk to you. And of stuff. course. <laughs> do you want to do more TV? Um, I would like to, but you know, I, again, that's, not under my control. Um, but I really, to be a part of Smash was very special just because of the connection to Broadway. And, you know, I'm very, yeah. very grateful for that opportunity. I, that might never happen again that we get another Broadway soap opera type I think. I think, like I said, I think <laughs> this is the beginning where, like, that sort of paved the way. And I, do you feel like it was ahead of his time at all? Like, cause I, I feel like that might have been putting too much hardcore Broadway out to people who have never experienced before, and they're like, "This is too different." Okay, <clears throat> here's the thing: <clears throat> it probably was a little ahead of its time because, to me, Fosse Verdon is so inside baseball. Yeah. And if that thing, if like if normal people are watching Fosse Verdon and they care, I'm like. What happened? Because to me, <laughs> that's so much more Broadway in terms of like, you'll get more out of it if you know why there's a Pippin song playing right now. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm like, who's going to know that? Like in my mind, other than those of us already in the church. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So obviously viewership is diversifying and changing and n- being more niche I just, you know, like just the way shows are nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. So I do in a way feel like it was a little ahead of its time. And I also feel like it probably should have been on a cable network. Yeah. Like that it would have done better if it had been on Showtime or HBO or something a little more where we'd have more, what is the word that I want? It could have been more, a little more explicit, not necessarily sexually, but we could have been more specific about it as opposed to sort of, generally, and now it's Broadway. And I'm like, well, not exactly. (laughs) Because, you know, obviously there were a lot of holes that we sort of had to skip over to Mm -hmm. get to the next part of the plot. And you'd just be like, what? You get a little darker on 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 an HBO, yeah. Yeah, but I just was like, wow, um, things are different now. And I absolutely think it would be a better show or at least a more, maybe a little more sense <laughs> than what, you know, than what we had. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoy Fosse Verdon. I enjoy Smash too. But no, I know. Yeah, I mean, of course. No, they're yeah. both great. And, you know, they're not the same. They're very, but like just to have, just to say that there's two. Yeah. I'm like, wow, amazing. <laughs> right. Well, we are coming up on our time here for the end of the podcast. And there are three standard questions I ask everyone. Fire on the podcast. Away. All right. Number one, very simply, what motivates you? 
What motivates me? Yeah. Joy. I feel like it's very important to remember why we put ourselves through these sorts of things. And I feel like um, it's, it's more to sort of sort of focus on how it, fe- how it feels um, to be on a stage and to tell stories with other people. Okay. Second question. What advice would you give to your younger self or younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Well, younger self already knows younger self should have taken dance class. <laughs> um, and lots of it a long time ago before younger self got too old to do that. Um, so that's my thing. In terms of advice to people now, it's absolutely trust that you are enough. You know, I feel like I spent so much time trying to be something I wasn't to sort of fit into a mold that I thought would be more commercial, which is ridiculous because nobody was going to be fooled. Even me with long hair and maybe being a little skinnier, I still don't have the talent to be in a lot of shows, (laughs) but I tried really, really hard to fit into a certain mold Mm -hmm. and it was ridiculous. I'm me. I'm still going to be me, you know, so why bother? All right. Just be you. Last question. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, (gasps) what would you see? What a horrible question that is. (laughs) Who who answered this question? What did they say? Um, I'm going to say William Finn's Falsetto Land. The, all the parts. In Trousers, Falsettos, Falsetto Lamb. In Trousers, March of the Falsettos, Falsetto Lamb. Those three parts. All right. The Marvin trilogy. <laughs> all right. So we can find you on Twitter at Ann Harada, on Instagram at I am Ann Harada. And of course, everyone, please go to noonecalledahead.com. Coming to your favorite device on June 13th. You can also find it on streamingmusicals.com. You can get more of me, thetheaterpodcast.com. Support us via slash Patreon. You can get us on Instagram and Twitter, theater underscore podcast, or facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Subscribe wherever you are listening. Rate, review, share. Tell your friends. This is produced by Jillian Hockman, edited by Matthew Hendershot. And as always, thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the lovely music. And thank you for being here. This has been lovely. Thank you. (laughs) Everything is only for now. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.